about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Now, as uh, Zahn mentioned earlier, we are week two into our series on the life of King David. We're looking through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel uh, and considering what we see of David's life as we walk through. Uh, The thing is, is that though uh, 1 and 2 Samuel is named after Samuel, it's not really about Samuel at all. We saw his origin story last week, uh, his birth from Hannah and his entrance into the uh, being a prophet of the Lord, but the rest of the story really is about the two kings that he installed, the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. And so Samuel kind of exits the narrative as David in particular comes into frame. Now in this series, we're not going to spend as long on Saul, we'll just mention him briefly tonight and he'll be kind of on the, on the side. We really want to talk about David. Because he is so significant in Scripture, such an important part of God's purposes and God's promises. And so we need to understand him to understand what has happened in Jesus Christ. But the question is, what is so significant about David? Why does he become so important to the promises of the Old Testament? What we see in this chapter, chapter 16, is that It is nothing to do with David that makes him significant. And it is everything to do with God. This whole chapter kind of hinges on one word. It's the word for seeing. It's all through the story in the Hebrew. And basically, God sees something about David that is very significant to his purposes. And that's the significance of David. Not anything in himself. I wonder what you see as you look out at the world at the moment. What varieties of chaos and goodness kind of swirl in your mind. Or as you look at your life at the moment, what you see. As you look out at the world, as you look out at your life, there are lots of things happening. And sometimes it's hard to discern where God's purposes are what God is doing, what he's up to, where we can find him, if at all, in our vision of the world. And I think what happens as we read this chapter and we, we, we see what God sees in David, we begin to see how God's purposes unfold in the world, where our vision kind of perks up. So let's have those two things in mind. Look at the significance of David and how that helps us understand a chaotic life in this world. Three things about seeing from chapter 16. First one is this. God sees something that Samuel doesn't. God sees something that Samuel doesn't. The chapter starts uh, with God addressing Samuel. How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil And be on your way. Interesting opening. Uh, And automatically the question is, well, why is Samuel mourning over Saul? 
Saul is the name of the first king of Israel, and Samuel's great work in his career was appointing Israel's first king and kind of trying to manage him. And that has turned out to be a catastrophic failure. And so we find Samuel at the beginning of this chapter in deep despair and mourning. It gives us a chance to think a little bit about Saul and why he was such a failure. Now, a lot of you won't have been alive in the mid-90s, so you might know who that is. Uh, But go and look up um, Fabio on YouTube later and you will have a great night. Um, This is the most beautiful man in the world. And Saul, in the narrative of one Samuel, is basically seen to be very beautiful but an absolute idiot. Very, very pretty on the eye, but not so much in the heart. Here's here's his story in three verses. It's a bit small for you. Sorry, I should have fixed this. But in 1 Samuel 8, what happens is Israel come to Samuel and say, Hey, mate, you are old, which is a bit mean, and your sons don't follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Israel come to Samuel and ask for a king. And they ask, wanting to be like other nations, have a really pretty person to stand out front and fight their battles for them. And so God, kind of ironically, gives them exactly what they asked for. Now, do you know what the name Saul means? Asked for. And what do, what do Israel get? What have they asked for? They get Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, a head taller than anyone else. Very, very pretty man. Very tall, very good looking, great to parade out the front of things, right? Uh, And and he he looks like he might be the goods. But then in chapter 13 and chapter 15 and then a bit later as well, he proves to be disobedient to what God wants. Samuel can't manage him. And Samuel confronts him and says, Listen, you have disobeyed the commandment of the Lord your God. And he has taken the kingdom from you. If you had obeyed him, you would have had his kingdom forever. So at the beginning of 16, we see Samuel mourning the sin of Israel's leader, who was foolish. It is the right response of a godly person to mourn the sin they see and its effect upon others. It's a great godly response we get. It's how we are to deal with the sin we see in our own lives, with the sin in our brothers and sisters, with the sin of great Christian leaders, with the sin of great people across our planet, to grieve it and mourn it. But God, nonetheless, comes to Samuel and says, come on, buddy. Let's get going again. Go fill your horn with oil, which is what he used to pour over someone and make them king, And says, let's get going, I've got someone else. Now, what's really important as this story starts is that the initiative is taken by God. With Saul, what's he? He's asked for by the people. But this king, God initiates. And he says in verse 1, I have chosen one of his sons, talking about Jesse, to be king. Or literally, I have seen for me. A king. I have seen for me a king. God sees something that Samuel doesn't. 
And Samuel freaks out. He says, okay, this is a great idea. We've got a foolish, beautiful king on the throne, and you want me to go anoint someone else's king. Saul's going to find out about this, and he's going to kill me. Great plan, God. And God hatches this little plan of a sacrifice and then inviting people, and he says, invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. This is God's plan. This is God's initiative. God sees a king. Not a populist pretty boy, but a king that he wants. God sees someone and something when Samuel doesn't. And it's a really interesting moment in Samuel because we have this problem of leadership through the whole first half. And we have Samuel and then Saul's a failure and we're wondering, well, how is this thing going to get going at all? There's not much hope. And what we're reminded of is that the God of the Bible is not just a bigger version of you and me. He can't just see a little further or is just a little bit wiser or just a little bit more knowledgeable. He is the eternal God who created all things through his word. He sees all things. He knows all things. And when our eyes fail, his don't. He will always see things when we see nothing. And as we see him take the initiative in this story, we're reminded that actually our vision of the world, our perspective and opinions, really pale into the comparison with his sight, his vision, his understanding of the world. And we are called to trust his sight, not our own. God sees something that Samuel doesn't. But the second thing about seeing in 1 Samuel 16, and this is going to sound weird at first, but I promise I'll explain it, is that God sees with his heart. God sees with his heart. What happens next is Samuel uh, is in the, the sacrifice and the sons and the family start walking in and Eliab walks in. And Samuel in verse 6 sees him and says, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He sees this guy and thinks, yeah, this is why I came. I'm going to get my oil out, going to pour it over him. New king, fantastic. God says, do not consider his appearance or his height. We've been there. Fabio, we don't need to do that again. Come on, Samuel. (laughs) It's a really interesting moment because you think Samuel would know better by now, but he doesn't. God says, I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He says to Samuel, listen, you're just looking with with your eyes at this situation, and you see another pretty looking man who's tall, and you think he might be king, but that's not how I see. And it sounds a little bit like God can just see further than Samuel, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like God sees into people, not just at their surface, which is true. God sees our hearts. You can't hide from him. You can't put on an appearance and keep him at bay. He knows everything about you. And it kind of sounds here like, well, the person who's going to be chosen, they're going to be superior on the inside. 
And we do read that in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, Samuel says, God's picked someone who's better than you to Saul. The person to come, David, will be morally better. But something bigger is happening here. Because when it says man looks at the outward appearance, it literally says man looks with his eyes. And then it says the Lord looks with not his eyes but his heart. It's the same way as when you can say you can look at a window or you can look through a window. Okay, Look at the window, at the frame, the prettiness, or through the window to what's beyond it. Same in the Hebrew, it could be saying he looks at the heart or he looks through his heart. And what we start to learn from the story of David is that David actually doesn't have a great heart. Not a morally superior heart to to Saul in the end. And so it's difficult to say that God looks into David and says, this guy's great, I really like this guy. It makes more sense to say God sees David with his heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, we get a clue a bit earlier. It's in the passage that we read before. And it's there that Samuel says, The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, which sounds again like a morally superior man, like the thing you'd say to your daughter, find a man after God's own heart. Find a man who has a good heart in him that God loves. But later in 2 Samuel, the same phrase is used, But it talks about God's heart. David says, I, O Lord God, I, O Lord uh, God, what is my house? And who am I uh, that you've brought me thus far because of your promise? And according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant known. So the whole choosing of David is not about it being David's heart that is significant. God is choosing him in accordance with his heart. It's not that God has a significant place in David's heart. It's that David has a place in God's heart. God has chosen David in his heart to fulfill his plans and purposes. In other words, there is nothing significant about David. The only thing significant about David is that God has chosen his frail flesh and his lineage and his kingdom to be the place where he makes his eternal heart and purposes and plans known and fulfilled. The remarkable reality in 1 Samuel 16 is that God will use a human king to do his eternal work. And he has set in his heart David to be the beginning of that purpose. And when he looks at David, he doesn't just see him, but he sees his great, great, great grandson. He sees the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. You see, when God looks at the world, when he picks people like David, God isn't looking out in the world looking for morally superior people to pick onto his team to get his purposes done. God finds morally bankrupt people and chooses them anyway. Because he is a God of eternal grace and goodness and unmerited favor. He chooses people like me and you and like David 
God sees with his heart. When he sees all the things happening in our chaotic world, he has a vision of how under his king, all things will come and be completed in his purpose. So in 1 Samuel 16, we're not just called to trust God's vision, but to trust God's heart. To trust his purposes. To trust that he will make things happen in the way he wants for the glory of his own name. God sees something Samuel doesn't, and God sees with his heart. But the third thing about seeing is actually about us, I think, a little bit in this passage. Because, you know, you might be at this point of the sermon thinking, this is really helpful, Matt. You've told me that God sees everything and that he sees it through his heart and his eternal purposes will happen, but that doesn't really help me deal with the chaos I see in the world happening right now and the chaos I see happening in my own life. But I think it does. And the third thing we see about seeing in this passage is that to deal with the confusing world, you have to keep your eyes on God's Messiah. To deal with a confusing world, you have to keep your eyes on God's Messiah. What happens in the next part of this story is kind of like a crossover between Cinderella and that scene from primary school where there were two captains picking teams and you didn't get picked, right? Crossover of both. Because all the sons kind of come before Samuel, and one by one God says, no, he's not going to be good. He doesn't really know how to throw balls or anything. And rejects each of them kind of one by one. No, he's not the one I've chosen, not the one I've chosen. And to the point where uh, Samuel has to ask embarrassingly in verse 11, have you got any more? And he says, well, there's the youngest, the littlest, he means, the the runt of the family, but we left him at home. Cinderella didn't get to come to the ball. Uh, He's off kind of looking after the sheep while we all party over here. And so Samuel says, you better invite him. He seems kind of important. And he walks into the room, and he's basically a good-looking little shepherd boy. He's he's a boy. He's a kid, right? He's not not Fabio. It says he's good-looking, but he's he's just a kid. And so we have this little boy, David, And the Lord says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And Samuel pours oil over him. And and as the oil drips over him, the Spirit of God comes on him. And for a really, this is a really significant moment in Scripture because in the kind of the, the, the time before this amongst God's people, the Spirit fell on leaders for kind of to, to fix a battle or to fix a, a moment or a crisis. And even on Saul, the spirit kind of comes and goes in battles. But it comes on David and stays. The Holy Spirit, the person of God, comes on David and stays and he grows up under God's power. That's how this piece of frail flesh will become a place in God's purposes through the power of God's Holy Spirit who brings up David. And so we get to the end of 30 and we think this is going to be great. There's going to be this crazy shepherd boy. He's got the spirit and he's going to be fantastic. Then you have this next really strange story where uh, because the spirit lands on David, it goes off Saul and Saul has this tormenting spirit. And Saul, the, the false Messiah, is served by the true Messiah. What? The false Messiah stays on the throne and God's king serves him, playing his harp because he's really good at it, bringing him relief, being taken into his army. This is a very confusing passage. And the rest of Samuel, 1 Samuel is very confusing. God's king does not get on the throne 
through the whole of 1 Samuel, he's hunted down and almost murdered. And you're left wondering, what is the point? Why is this so confusing? How come when God picks a king for his purposes, it is so strange? There is only one human character in this whole story that actually sees things in the right way. And it's Saul's attendant. One of the servants answered, verse 18, I have seen, seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's brave, he's a warrior, he speaks well, he's fine looking, and the Lord is with him. In a confusing world with two anointed kings, one false and one true, an attendant of Saul looks at David and sees God doing something. He's the only human character, including Samuel, who actually sees something significant happening, stirring in David through the presence of God's Spirit with him. And it's kind of like inserted into the narrative as, as an instructive word for us for the rest of Samuel that we're to have our eyes on David no matter how weird the story gets. Because in David, God will fulfill his purposes. It's kind of like this. The other day I put up fairy lights at our house, but I borrowed them from that room so I had to take them down quickly and bring them back so I didn't tell anyone I took them. And um, I'm not very logical, and so I pulled them down very haphazardly, and they were really tangled. I thought I really shouldn't put them back this tangled, so I tried to untangle them and got them really tangled. Um, and I just took a deep breath for a moment, and you know when you get things, lights really tangled, and you just you make it worse and worse and worse, and the, you know, there's one way out. One way out. If you can find the one little end strand of the lights, you will be okay. (laughs) Because when you can see the one end point, you can drag it back through the chaos of the middle again and again and again and again until things are untangled. I think that's how we're supposed to handle life. Our God who sees all things and sees them through his heart and will enact his purposes doesn't give us the plan behind the chaos we see, even in our own lives, infuriating as that might be sometimes. But he does put his spirit on his king and says, if you keep your eyes on him, the tangle might make a little more sense. And if you keep your eyes on him, Even if it's not okay, in the end, be assured, the purposes of my heart will not be thwarted. And so on the day when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, it said that the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit came down upon him. And a voice said from heaven, this is my beloved son. When the Spirit came on David, our Lord God was foreshadowing the day when his rightful heir would be anointed with the Spirit and enter into the strangest story imaginable, dying on the cross to accomplish the purposes of God's heart. And friends, when you keep your eyes on him, 
when you trust the perspective he gives you on our world and on your life, you will find a way through the tangle. This passage is summoning us to not trust our sight sometimes. Not to trust our plans all the time. But to keep our eyes on what God is doing in Jesus. And trust that in the end, he will accomplish everything through his spirit-anointed Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you see so much more than we do. And that you're a kind and gracious God who chooses us not because we are superior, but because we desperately need your grace. We're thankful for our Lord Jesus the greatest son of David, who has become your eternal king. We want to lay aside our trust in our own vision and plans. And we pray in the tangle of whatever we're seeing in your world or whatever we're seeing in our lives, that you would help us not take our eyes from him in the power of his same spirit, that we might trust you until the end of our days. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.